5: When people ask me, what are your brothers like? I turn my head and smile. How do you say campfires, American trucks, and wet grass? My brothers are WD-40, cast iron gates, and thermal underwear. They're broken windows, shell casings, and swinging screen doors. Ryan is my twin. Dylan is my opposite. But on the right day, we're the same. I want to tell you a story. A true story, but truth is always based in opinion. And who's to say that we're telling the truth?
3: Welcome to The Dougherty Gang, a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios, Episode 2, 7.15 in the morning. I'm Courtney Armstrong, a crime producer at KT Studios with Stephanie Lidecker. We've been working with producer Beth Greenwald on The Dockerty Gang for months now. The three siblings have agreed to tell their story for the very first time, each from separate prisons. Lee Grace Doherty is at Federal Correction Institute Aliceville in Alabama. Ryan is in United States Penitentiary Tucson in Arizona. And Dylan is at the Federal Corrections Institute in Bennettsville in South Carolina. This call is from a federal prison.
5: Me and Dylan were just looking at each other like in a state of shock and surprise. If Dylan is under anxiety, you know that I'm going to be under anxiety because Dylan is usually a very cool, calm, collected person.
6: I felt like everything was really stacked against us, you know what I mean? And I just felt like it was just unfair from the start.
3: On the afternoon of August 1st, 2001, 21-year-old Ryan Doherty came home from court, met with his probation officer, and found out he was in a situation where he would soon be sent to prison, away from his son, who was days away from being born. Here he is speaking with Beth Greenwald.
7: And so now this guy's at your home and he's telling you all these things and these threats, and is Dylan there? He
8: was in the fucking shed. With the little shorty AK, because he had put the majority of the firearms in there, and the guy goes over and jiggles it because it's got a log chain through two holes that are bored into the doors of the shed. And I'm already of the mind pretty much we're gonna rock and roll and get out of here. The guy gave it a mighty little shove, and he, you know, when he came inside. He's like, Hey, you're gonna need to give me a key to that, or open it for me, or whatever, some some shit like that.
7: He leaves, and what happens?
8: Yeah, he leaves. And then we start talking about things. And then my baby's mother tells my brother and sister, she's like, holy shit, I can't believe my fucking ears uh, uh, of what this guy just threatened.
3: Feeling he was out of options, he and his siblings, 29-year-old Lee Grace and 26-year-old Dylan, were grappling with the reality they were facing. Here's Lee Grace.
2: I think all that stress was coming out, and it was coming out in negative ways. And I think Dylan, being the older, protective big brother, was looking at this as a short-term solution of let's run from the problem because the probation officer does not want to work with Ryan.
6: I wouldn't say I was thinking clear. It's hard to explain, but once the stars had aligned, it was like the gravitational pull was just, that's what it was. It was just a really bad situation for our family. All we
5: knew about prison is from what we had seen on TV or movies. We basically thought, okay, well, you go to prison and you die. So with us going into that with that type of fear, that type of anxiety, we basically thought that any time in prison is a death sentence. You know, that was the state of mind that we were in. We didn't know any better. You know, nobody in our family had ever been to prison.
3: With the strict mandate the probation officer was laying out, Ryan felt like he was in an impossible situation.
8: The probation officer comes to your job and Florida's a right to work state. Your probation officer comes to your job and... Your job's like, yo, you're on probation, man. We don't want to deal with this shit or somebody like you. You're fired. You're like, bro, if I get fired, I'm going back to prison.
5: Ryan just felt like he couldn't do the probation. There was no way with him having a newborn baby, how was he going to facilitate child care? How was he going to drop him at school? There were so many questions that we didn't know, and it just seemed impossible to work around all these rules.
3: After the probation officer left, anxiety and fear mounted, and Lee Grace and Dylan met up with Ryan at his house to figure out a way to protect Ryan and keep him from being sent to jail for 15 years.
8: We were all at the house, and we're sitting down. I'm writing shit on paper because I'm dumb and paranoid enough to think that the fucking ankle bracelet monitor, I don't know if it's got like a microphone on it. That's how young and stupid I was and like fucking paranoid. That's, that's how bad my thought process was at that age. We were sketching it out, we would go back and forth and kind of try and figure out what seemed like semi-right. And for plotting what we were plotting, we were relatively calm about it. So we sit there, we sketch out a rough plan, and that was it. As I sit now, granted, I've had 10 years to think about it, but my brain works differently than it did then, right? You know, you can very, a very basic litmus test is just to, to say things out loud, and if they sound stupid, maybe don't do them. And, and for that one, it was just a dumb fucking idea. How
7: long did it take for the plan to come into fruition? Was it a 10 minute conversation? Was it an all night conversation?
2: It was pretty much all night because. I know, I was laying on the couch, and I'm talking, Ryan's next to me, Dylan's pacing. So it was just, everything was just happening so fast, and Ryan was just upset. He was shaking. It would go from anger to grief to sadness.
8: I don't know, I just felt kind of traumatized from the whole shit, and I just snapped. So I yeah, I wasn't exactly thinking right, and I was at the point where I was almost just happy, just happy that, you know, this, this will force a resolution. Hopefully somebody will pay attention once they've seen this fucking bomb that went off.
3: Here's Dylan again.
8: You know, we're just going to do this, X,
6: Y, Z, we'll get that, and then we'll be gone, and and everything will be all right. You know, the plan was really fluid, but, you know, Ryan's girlfriend was going to come down south and meet up with us, and when the dust settles, this is where we'll be.
3: The wheels began to turn, and an off-the-cuff plan was hatched. Early the next morning, the siblings would pack up and head to Mexico, where they'd start fresh. Ryan would send for Amber and the baby once they got settled.
5: The timeline was very last minute because at no point did we ever look at each other and say, Let's get in the car, let's load up the guns. Our plans were actually to stay under the radar, not just from the probation officer, but from anybody that was trying to track us. I'm not gonna say I was like
8: blinded by rage, but I was like I was blinded by, you know, just kind of being in that corner. You get to a point, I guess all people probably have it where Whenever you do snap, it's, it's very hard to come back to making, like, rational decisions. I just snapped in, like, a big way.
3: Older sisterly Grace wanted nothing more than to help her little brother out of the situation.
2: I think he was under so much stress that my brother, Ryan, he did not know what to do. You know, he's a young man. This is his first baby. He was under a lot of pressure from his baby's mother.
8: I sent some text messages that were inappropriate. If it was that bad, why did you just give me probation? the judge in court saying in my, in my transcripts he's like i'm sorry i'm lumping you in with 40 year olds that rape 11 year olds but unfortunately our legislator has no difference
3: he is Dr. Avadon Maleski he's a PhD and associate professor who specializes in complex family difficulties and developmental psychology he's also the author of sibling issues in therapy Dr. Maleski followed the docketed case closely here he is speaking with producer Beth Greenwald when this story
7: first broke what were your initial thoughts on this family, these siblings.
9: Only My first knee-jerk reaction to when you hear a story of three young adults driving around violently, shooting at cops across several states and bank robberies, and, right, your first initial reaction is these are criminals, let's go get them. But then, a uh, more of a rational part of my brain kicks in, and considering that it was a sibling story, I started reading up on this case a little bit further, and then as the story unfolds and more information comes around, and then I start realizing that it's much more complicated than the black and white of the good guys and the bad guys. When you really look at the crime involved and how they were sentenced and how they were treated, even initially, why Ryan had to be registered as a sex offender, that whole story of how it developed is a system failure. These siblings, the entire system failed them. The only system that did not fail them is the sibling system. It was the only system that took care of them, the sibling dynamic that they had.
7: And let me ask you something. This thing that happened was going to destroy the rest of his life for all intents and purposes. Register as a sex offender, ankle monitoring device, all these things. And did you feel like, just in your opinion, if something had been broken down a little bit, if things had been explained, if he wasn't looking at 15 years in jails for sexting, you know, was that a system fail, as you said? Or kind of unpack that a little bit, if you don't mind.
9: You have to register as a sex offender equal to someone, a 50-year-old pervert who raped a kid in a yard, they are registered in the same registry because he, as a 19-year-old, he sexted uh, someone who thought it was 50 now. We're obviously not condoning that behavior in any way. But do we really equate the actions of a 19-year-old that was basically sending a lewd text to a rapist? We can't. Now, again, legally we do. And that's part of the failure here. He did something far less severe than that. And that really spiraled this entire, that's what got this entire story going. So when I say it was a system failure, this is one of the kegs that
3: failed him. Here's Ryan speaking with Beth Greenwald. Would you say it was survival mode?
8: Panic mode. You know, you're panicked. And when you panic, you don't think correctly. When it's a situation like that, I mean, I don't know how clearly they were thinking. I don't know their thought process. I mean, I know my whole life they're my brother and sister. It's just difficult to say what was going through their head. I mean, as they were older than me, I carry guilt around with me, and I probably will for the rest of my life, even though they tell me not to. Essentially, I ruined their whole life, and it's just hard to live with that.
3: Frank Kaczynski is the owner of Tampa Bay Monitoring. His company has been providing alcohol and GPS monitors for over a decade. He shared his thoughts on how Ryan's probation was structured.
10: In his case, he was given this bracelet with the idea that, one, he was responsible for paying for it. And I'm guessing, and I don't know this for a fact, that he was placed on some form of house arrest, which meant you had to keep track of everywhere you went. If you had anything, any exceptions, it had to be approved by a probation officer or some authority. And in his case also, you had to make sure you kept up the payments
8: like you got to go to like meetings like three times a week and you got to fucking pay like twelve hundred dollars a month to be on that probation you know i'm pulling in like eighteen hundred dollars a month so you want twelve hundred of that and then you want me to fucking be at this place at that time but like as soon as i tell my job hey i can't work today i have to go to this meeting they're gonna be like yeah we'll find another employee it's a right to work state
10: that's a problem There's jurisdictions such as Tennessee that the state literally will pay for the bracelet if you can't, because they figure it's a cheaper way of, number one, avoids overcrowding. Two, it allows you to keep your job. Three, you sleep in your own bed with your family. Mommy and daddy are there, not in jail. In this case, they basically told him that he was responsible for paying for this thing, and he couldn't do it. And they didn't care. It was basically being set up for failure. People charge anywhere from 8 to $15 a day. And I mean, I don't know too many people who can pay 15 or, you know, sometimes $10 a day plus a deposit or whatever else is necessary. But why they insisted on a payment here when they know the guy didn't have the pot or the window to throw it out of, it's nonproductive.
3: Ryan was feeling hopeless as he processed what this one mistake from two years ago would do to the rest of his life
10: you get a felony, you're
8: fucking pigeonholed into a goddamn mediocre job and a mediocre life and like just barely making it. Go figure out what the minimum wage is in Florida at the time that I was there. It's like fucking $8 or some shit. Go figure out what rent costs, go figure out what food costs, figure out what a car payment costs, figure out what the cell phone payment costs, figure out what insurance costs. There's no way to cover it. You know, you get to a point where you're just sitting there and you're like, well, what is the point of me even being alive anymore? You know, what's the point? What, what can I do?
3: The deathbed promise Dylan made to his dad to look out for his little brother was something Dylan took very seriously. He felt powerless and as a result, his frustration intensified.
6: The part that really you know, bothers me is, we've all made mistakes, we've all done things that we maybe regret a little bit or, or a lot of it later. I'm not saying everybody's committed a felony. You know, my brother made a lot of mistakes as a kid. It's just another one of those things It's like an unfortunate event the way that it all unfolded.
2: It was like we were all on pins and needles. I could just see anger. Dylan is just filled with this anger. It's just coming out of him. And it was just a really anxious time.
3: Lee Grace was struggling with her addiction to drugs and was coming off a bender. The situation was forcing her to quit pills cold turkey.
5: I don't feel good. I need my pills. And they're basically saying, no, you don't. You know, so I don't have any pills with me. I don't have any drugs whatsoever. So, you know, all my Xanax are gone. I've eaten all of them.
3: We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment.
6: If you dare.
3: The plan was to try to get some sleep and leave first thing in the morning.
2: I remember I was extremely drowsy. I had only slept for about four or five hours, and I got up, and it was early in the morning. I just remember being on the porch and looking, and I'm looking out, and it's, it's very bright, and everything is just kind of happening, but I'm just physically there. I'm not, my emotions are just somewhere else. I was almost kind of emotionally shut down, but I remember carrying things and putting them in the back of the Subaru, and I'm just looking at Dylan, and I'm just following him. I'm just trying to kind of gauge how everything is going to happen, but at the same time, you don't know something bad is going to happen. You just have a very ominous feeling
3: As the Dohertys packed up the car, it was obvious their plan came from a place of panic, not common sense. The siblings weren't prepared on any level for the journey ahead.
8: You know, to be honest with you, I don't even think we packed any food or water. You know, later on down the line, we thought, we're like, hey man, we should probably get a water bottle, just a really simple water bottle.
5: At one point, I was going back and forth uh, am I going to go with them the whole way? Mexico with them or maybe I was gonna stay with Amber because you know she's about to give birth to this baby and I wanted to be there for my nephew and help out with the baby and even if it was only in my own head I was thinking well maybe I need to stay with Amber as you know her older sister or you know to look out for the rest of the family that we would be leaving behind Um, now when I got in the car and um, we, we left. That's why I decided, well, this is, this is where I'm at. This is, I'm gonna to continue to stay with Ryan and Dylan because they need me.
6: I think we knew we needed money before we left uh, Florida. At that point, you know what I mean, it was, it was just a whirlwind. I had so many tools. I probably could have, you know, got on the internet and had a, you know, on eBay and had a yard sale and come up with 20, $25,000.
3: In retrospect, it's easy to see that selling the tools would have been a smarter plan than packing up the guns to sell.
2: We were going to cross into Mexico once we had cash because we didn't want any credit cards. We didn't want any ties to where we were going.
3: The Daugherty's didn't have much money on them and they knew they would need cash to make it to Mexico undetected.
5: We actually had my brother's guns and he was going to sell them to make money. Dylan's friend... Was going to purchase the guns from us and give us cash.
6: I feel like I did what uh, you know, anybody would do, as far as you know, maybe not as a, going to the degree that I carried, it, but I know Lee Grace had to shoot it on the other foot. I wouldn't even have to ask them once. They would have been there for me just as much as I was there for Ryan.
5: Ryan loving Amber the way he did, if he's separated from someone he loves, he's going to go off the deep end. So a lot of his thought process was, what do I do without my baby's mom? What do I do without the baby? So, you know, that really factored in. It was harsh. It was very harsh on him. He was very sad. He was very lonely. You know, he was expressing a lot of distress.
3: Amber was due to give birth in a matter of days, and it crushed Ryan to leave her. Here again is Ryan speaking with Beth Greenwald.
7: So you knew it was a son before you left, correct? You guys found out the sex of the baby?
8: Yeah, I did, I went with her, I took off of work. You know what, man, it was the weirdest thing that would make her happy, man. She was just so happy that I would be willing to take off of work to come, and I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, man, she's crazy if she thought that she could keep me from coming to go to the ultrasound with her to see if it was a a boy or a girl. I had a ritual with her. I would always come back in and uh, kiss her goodbye before I went to work. I'd leave, I get all the way out, and I have like a little ritual. I come all the way back in the house, and I, Pull the cover down just a little bit because she always goes back to bed because I get up so fucking early to work. And I always give her a kiss and I always tell her I love her. Same thing I would always do before I went to bed. And uh, I go to go back inside. She's all pregnant, belly and big and standing on like the front stoop on the inside crying, you know, and I told her I loved her and goodbye. I'm driving away, I drive about 15 miles away from the house, 20 miles away from the house. I'm like, all right, can't have this ankle bracelet no more. Cut it off. I wrapped it up with its box neatly, and I set it nicely on the side of the road in a place where they could easily locate it and get their ship back. Once you line out a course and you commit yourself to it, there's some things that you just can't take back. You know, once you cross that Rubicon, you're just fucked. Like, you've committed to that cause, and you've got no choice but to see it through.
3: Here's some additional insight from Dr. Avedon Maleski's conversation with Beth. Brian obviously had committed a crime two years earlier than the
7: start of this quote-unquote crime spree and he was labeled a sexual offender and he's the first to admit and take ownership of that what he did was wrong but he was uh, 18 or 19 and he sent sexually inappropriate text to a minor
9: now a 19 year old is not functioning completely in terms of decision making our knee-jerk reaction is oh he's a criminal that's it either he's got a rap sheet already And we think in this black and white way, when it comes to, quote, criminals, when you start peeling away, and I think this story is a window into this larger issue of how do we deal with, quote, criminals, and we just box them all in. And the sex registry is the greatest example of that. But socially, psychologically, developmental psychology, neurologically, it's a whole different story. So again, the system, many systems fail them, except for the sibling system.
7: And let's go back a little bit, because, you know, their father really instilled in in the children from a young age the importance of family. So how does that land, you know, in that family dynamic?
9: They they were clearly a close-knit, a bunch of siblings. And then you add all these stressors to it, and that closeness just thrives even further. And, And that sibling closeness or that sibling compensation is kicking in now in a very powerful way in order to help the siblings continue working together to deal with this new life adversity.
3: The Doherty's were looking forward to a fresh start. Unfortunately, they did not foresee what would happen next.
9: We're only in the
5: car about maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30. You know, we had just gotten in the car and I had just, we had just come from the gas station and I was very drowsy, I was sleeping on and off. And as soon as the cops got behind us, that's when I immediately woke up and realized there's a problem. You know, I'm looking at Dylan, well, what are we gonna do? And Dylan's, you know, we're all in that state of panic. I think when the cop, um, when he put his lights on, I don't remember if he actually put the siren on, but I do remember him putting the lights on. And at that moment, you know, it's like 7 or 7.15 in the morning, I thought, well, there's no turning back now because now the police are involved. At any point before that, I think we could have made a different decision. We could have gone a different way, and the police would never have gotten behind us. And we would have just had continued our merry way to getting rid of the guns, selling them legally, and getting the money and just leaving the United States.
8: I remember somebody asking, you know, hey, are you, are you going to pull over? Or, you know, what are you going to do?
7: Was there ever a moment where you thought about pulling over?
8: Not from, like, the first little bit. I have an asshole load of guns in the car. I'm a convicted felon. I just cut off my ankle bracelet monitor. For me, that river got crossed as soon as I cut that bracelet off. And a cop pulls out and cherries up, pops his lights on me.
3: Here's Detective Kevin Widener. At the time, he was an officer on the Zephyr Hill Police Department. Here he is speaking with Beth Greenwald.
7: I would love to hear from your perspective what you remember about that day and how it started for you and what happened from there.
11: started out like any other day for me. I just went and I got my cup of coffee and then I was going to run radar and do some traffic control. I set up at 6th Street, which is a one-way street in Zephyr Hills. The speed limit was 30 through there. And as I was running, the car passed me doing 45 and Pulled in behind it, uh, turned on my lights. I knew they wasn't going to stop just based off the way that they was acting.
3: Let's stop here for another quick break. We'll be back in a moment. The Dockerties wanted to fly under the radar, but less than 30 minutes into their ride to Mexico, they'd engaged police.
8: And I'm like, well, fuck, I can't pull over. So then I take off and I start running.
11: And then they made a right-hand turn onto 54 from 6th Street. And as soon as they made that right turn, they started shooting at me several rounds. And then at that point, began to pursue them. And there were still more shots being fired from the passenger side of that vehicle. Whoever was sitting in that passenger seat, they were still firing at me as we was going down 54. It was just me at that time. I didn't have any backup units, so I tried to keep some distance between us. And just keep a little bit of visual on them. Speeders were about 100 miles per hour or a little over.
3: With his focus on his family and his future, Ryan made a life-altering decision in a split second.
8: It wasn't personal. It was between me and my freedom. I did what I thought I had to do from a lack of good options came a shitty option.
3: Here's Lee Grace.
5: We were not that, the, the type of family to physically harm somebody because we know what physical harm can do to somebody's body. You can become paralyzed or, you know, you could end up in a wheelchair. So in no way would we actually aim a gun at someone's
11: physical body. From the sound of it, I thought that they, they sprayed the whole side of my car, but actually they get, just got the front driver's side tire. These went back up to about 100 miles per hour. My front tire was flat, so I couldn't keep up with them safely at that point.
3: Officer Widener had vowed to protect and serve, and he was not going to be deterred.
11: Right away, it's game on. They're obviously a danger. If they're going to shoot at me like that, then obviously they're a danger to a citizen,
8: so we're going to do what we need to do to stop that threat. At the end of the day, I made a plan, it was shitty, it was take enough money to get out of country, to be somewhere that doesn't have extradition treaties and to try and start a life there. It wasn't a good idea, it was never a good plan. It was never a good idea, but I didn't think well when I was that age.
11: As Soon as I come around the corner and I see a muzzle flash from the AK, then it's one of those old shit moments, to be honest with you. I remember
5: being woken up out of like a cold sleep, just hearing like, pow, 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 pow. pow.
8: I'm hell on wheels behind anything with a motor and some wheels in a car. I've probably outran the cops a hundred times. I did not get the tag number right off the bat. All I knew it was an out-of-state
11: tag and the, the car that was speeding.
8: Anything north of 100 is a pretty good clip. But for me, like you know, I'll hang out at like 120 or 130 on the interstate and think nothing of it.
11: They was showing total disregard for everybody's
8: safety. Pulling over is an option. It's too easy in that area to hit some left and rights on them and disappear. People they are like, you cannot run the radio. Bullshit.
3: More on that next time. The Dockerty Gang is executive produced by Stephanie Lidecker and me, Courtney Armstrong, along with Beth Greenwald, Sean McEwen, and Joseph Morgan. Editing and sound design is by Jeff Thois. Mixing by Peter Ney. Additional producing by Chris Graves and Jeff Shane. The Dockerty Gang is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios.